The following audio is from Potomac Heights Baptist Church, located in Indian Head, Maryland. More information about Potomac Heights Baptist Church is available at www.phbc.com. Potomac Heights Baptist Church exists to glorify God and to make Christ known to the ends of the world by helping one another become more like Jesus. It is our hope that you will prayerfully listen to this sermon audio. Well, it's good to see you again so soon. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, I invite you to open with me to the book of Joshua in the Old Testament. It's the sixth book in the Bible. So um, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua is where you'll find that. Does anybody need a Bible, by the way? Raise your hand. Greg's right over there. He can bring you a Bible. Anybody need a Bible? Looks like we're good there, Greg. Thank you, brother. Um, if you grabbed one of those on the way in, you'll find Joshua chapter 1, I believe, on page 210 is where you'll find it in those Bibles. I've titled today's message, Be Strong and Courageous. Be Strong and Courageous. Many of us, many of us have probably been there standing in the pool with the water, you know, coming up to roughly chest high, holding out our arms to our sons or daughters as we coax them to jump in. And of course, you know, they're, they're a bit frightened. You know, maybe they can't swim at all, or maybe they're not very good swimmers. And so it's understandable that they're a bit afraid, that they don't want to jump into the unknown. But there we stand as mom or dad, someone they, they trust, as parents, you know, when we hold out our arms to her, we're saying to them, I'm here for you. I'll catch you. I'll, I'll protect you. And we continue to coax them to jump in. I remember an incident in my own childhood uh, that was similar to that. I, I've made no secret, so I don't mind jumping in the water, but I've made no secret to you that I'm not a big fan of heights. Uh, I never have been, even since I was a child. But when I was in Cub Scouts, I don't remember exactly how old I was, maybe seven or eight years old. Um, I had to climb a tree to the, to the height of 10 feet. Uh, it was amazing how high that was. Uh, but I had to do so in order to, I think it was to earn a, a, mer- a badge or my next rank or something like that. But as a, as a seven or eight year old who's afraid of heights, they may as well have been asking me to scale Mount Everest as far as you, in my mind. That, that's how bad it was for me. I was petrified, but there stood my dad, all all six foot one of him, reaching up with his arms as if to say, I'm here to support you. I'm with you. If you slip, I'm right here. You know, he he was saying, you're not going to get hurt. I'll catch you. His presence was to say, I'm with you. I'm with you. Today we continue our sermon uh, series through Advent. Uh, The series as a whole is called God With Us. And today we're going to see that because God is with us, we can be strong and courageous. And so if you're in Joshua chapter 1, say amen. All right. Um, Follow along as I read those nine verses, verses 1 through 9. It says, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant. Joshua, my servant, excuse me, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise. Go over this Jordan, you and all the people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. 
Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will also be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law of Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, uh, living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And so I prayed now this morning that you would use this time, use the proclamation of your word. I pray that your spirit would accompany my words and that you would do a work in our lives that only you are capable of doing. And so what we are not this morning, I pray you would make us. What we have not this morning, give us. And what we know not this morning, Father, teach us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, for those note-takers out there, I like to give a central idea. And the idea is this. God's presence with us enables us to be strong and courageous. God's presence with us enables us to be strong and courageous. Um, I have four points this morning, but before I jump into any of those four points, I want to give a little background to the text so that we understand where we're at in the history of God's people. This book that we call Joshua, it's named after the same Joshua that we find in the book of Numbers, in Numbers 13. In Numbers 13, Moses sends 12 men into the promised land so that they can spy out the land. One man from each of Israel's 12 tribes. And those 12 tribes, or 12 men rather, spend the next 40 days spying out the land and then they come back to give a report of what they've seen. All 12 of them report that the land is beautiful and that it flows with milk and honey. But ten of those twelve spies say that the people who are living there already, that they're too mighty. And so those ten spies argue that Israel should not go into the land even though the Lord has already promised it to them. But two of the spies, one guy named Joshua and another guy named Caleb, they say to the men, they say the men of the land are indeed, they're, they're a great people, a mighty people. But because the Lord has promised this land to us, we should go into the land and take it. Now, as you might expect, the people of Israel side with the ten frightened spies instead of the two faithful spies. And this begins their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. One year of wandering for every day that the spies were in the land. And for the next 40 years, Joshua is Moses' right-hand man. 
As the people wander through the wilderness, Joshua is Moses' faithful lieutenant. But now as we make our way into the book of Joshua, these 40 years of wandering, they're coming to an end. Moses has just died. So if you turn back into the previous book, into Deuteronomy chapter 34, Moses dies. The leadership mantle now is being passed on to Joshua. He's now in charge of the people as they take their next steps of faith. And so that's where we find ourselves now in the history of God's people. So let's take a look at those four points from Joshua chapter 1. Point number one is we are called to His work. We are called to His work, to God's work. That's what, that's what we're called to. In verse 2, God reminds Joshua that Moses is dead. I'm, I'm sure he didn't need a reminder, but nevertheless, he gives him a reminder. God is dead. And so he says to Joshua, Now, therefore, arise and go over this Jordan, you and all the people into the land that I am giving them to the people of Israel. Those verbs that we have there, arise and go over in this verse, they're, they're given to Joshua in the imperative mood. And so for those of you that might need a little refresher on your grammar, that means that they are commands given to Joshua. God is telling Joshua what to do. It's not a suggestion. He's not, he's not saying, you know, hey, it might be a good idea if you, if you decided to do this. No, he's telling Joshua what to do. It's a command to enter the land. A command to enter the land that's been promised to them already. But Joshua is just a human being like you and I are. And so I'm sure that there's running through his mind a certain kind of deja vu. And, and here's what I mean. For Joshua, he's already been here, right? He's already been in this situation. Now, sure, it was 40 years ago, and so in one sense we might think, well, that's a lifetime ago. But in another sense, it was just like it was yesterday for Joshua. Forty years ago, Joshua wanted to enter into the land. He encouraged the people, let's enter the land. But the people of God made a dreadful choice not to listen to God. And because of that choice, all of the adult men, so 40 years ago, everyone who was an adult male at that time, every last one of them died in the wilderness, except for two. The only two that didn't die in the wilderness were Joshua and Caleb. And now he stands here again on the precipice, getting ready to enter the land. Joshua's being commanded again, believe God. He's being commanded again, do the work of God. And so is he going to make a faithful choice like he was ready to do 40 years ago? Or will his faith waver this time? Now, if you know the rest of the story, you know that Joshua continues to be a man of faith. But what about us? What about us? You know, for you and I, it's extremely unlikely that we're ever going to stand on one side of a river and be commanded to, to lead God's people across that river into a hostile territory. Okay? We can just, we can take that off the table, I think. You know, that's, that's not going to happen to us. But does that mean that this passage doesn't have anything to teach us, to tell us? I don't think so. Beloved, I believe that we're regularly called to do the work of the Lord. All of us. It might not be taking God's people across the river into hostile territory, but we're nevertheless called to do the work of God. And so the question then becomes, will we be faithful? 
or will we be faithless? What type of choices will we make? And, and in what sense will we, will we be called to do God's work? Let me, let me give you a, a, for example, a simple for example. An obvious for example. Jesus, on the night before He was, uh, or excuse me, after He was crucified, as He was preparing to ascend into heaven, He gave a command to His people to go and make disciples of all the nations. And so if you're a Christian, if, if you have sworn your allegiance, so to speak, to Christ, God has called you to be a disciple maker. It's a command given by God, not a suggestion. It's a command. It's right there on our sidewall as you, as you exit. It's called the Great Commission. It was given to us by Jesus as a command. And so we're to be disciple makers in our home. We're to be disciple makers in our communities. We're to be disciple makers in our workplaces. We're to be disciple makers all the way to the ends of the earth. There is not one square inch over all creation over which Jesus has not declared, Mine. This belongs to me. And so wherever we are and whatever we're doing, we're supposed to be making disciples. What does that look like? Perhaps for those of you with young children in the home, it might look like reading the Bible with your children, singing songs with your Bible. I have wonderfully fond memories of my wife singing What a Mighty God We Serve with our children as they jump, including all the hand motions and everything that go with it. Uh, just wonderful, fond memories of that. Or perhaps making disciples might look like for you hosting an evangelistic Bible study in your home for your neighbors. Or maybe making disciples might look for you having a regular lunch date with a coworker, or maybe it's a new Christian where you get together on a regular basis and you say, let's read a chapter of the Bible together and you work through a book of the Bible together. But hear me well, beloved. It's simply not an option. It is not an option for Christians to say, yeah, I don't want to make disciples. I'm not going to do it. It's, it's not an option. God has called us to His work, whether we want to do it or not. Now, it may not be easy to make disciples. It may not be convenient. But the work God has promised us, or called us to do, rather, it was never promised to be easy. If, we, if you read, for example, just the rest of the book of Joshua, you'll see that these seemingly innocent commands, right? Arise, go over. Simple enough commands. But read the rest of the book of Joshua and you'll find out that this wasn't something easy that Joshua was being called to. There would be strife. There would be turmoil. There would even be loss of life. But Joshua was called to that work. He was commanded to arise and go over that Jordan. In the same way, we're commanded to make disciples. Not an easy work, but a necessary work. It's God's work. That's point number one. Point number two. So we will face opposition. So as, as we go about God's work, we will face opposition. Uh, you know, to, borrow, to borrow a line from Farmer's Insurance, uh, Joshua knows a thing or two about opposition. As I shared earlier, the first time Israel was supposed to enter into the land, to, that, to the promised land, Jos, Jos, excuse me, Joshua was shouted down. By the crowd. I mean, he was one of only two voices saying, yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Everybody else. No, no, we're not going to do it. So here they are 40 years later. They're making preparations to actually now cross over the Jordan River to enter the land. They know 
They, they still know that the people of, who are living in the land, that they're still a mighty people. They're a fierce people. And they're not going to just like roll out the red carpet and say, hey, well, welcome, come on in and take, our, take the land that we've been living in. That, that's not going to happen. There's trouble brewing on the horizon. There will be wars. There will be lives lost. There will be blood shed. But even as Joshua knows these things are happening, notice this with me. Look at verse 5. God says to Joshua in verse 5, He says this, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Now notice this. God doesn't tell Joshua that no man will attempt to stand before him all the days of his life. Joshua's living in a broken world. And as long as we're living in a broken world, there, conflict will happen. And so God's not making a promise to Joshua, you don't have to worry about it. There's not going to be any conflict ahead of you. But just like, so for us today, for those of us who want to follow Christ, there, there will be conflict. There will be persecution. It's, it's an absolute certainty that that will happen to us. As sure as the sun will rise in the east tomorrow morning, you will be persecuted if you desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. Now, how do I, how do I know that? You might say, well, how do you know that, Pastor? How do you know that we will face persecution? Is it because I myself have faced persecution? Well, yeah, I have faced persecution, but that's not why I know it's going to happen to you. You might think, well, maybe you know that because you have friends, people that you know, godly people you know who have gone through persecution. And yes, I have many godly friends I've known who've gone through persecution, as many of you probably have friends. But that's not why I know we're going to experience persecution. The reason I know for certain that we will face persecution is because that is what the Bible promises us. The Bible says that if we surrender our lives to Jesus, if you follow Jesus and live a godly life, you will face persecution. Now, how's that for an invitation, right? Any, any, any takers? I mean, it's, that, that's the kind of cross or countercultural invitation that Jesus would often share with His followers. Jesus didn't invite people to say, come to me and you can experience your best life now. He said, come to me and take up your cross daily and follow me. You're going to face persecution. In 2 Timothy, Paul is writing to his young protege, named Timothy, as the name would suggest. He says these words. Listen to these, please. You needn't turn there, but you can write this down. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 10-13. through 13. He says to Timothy, You, however have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. You might think, okay, good, 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 good. Verse 11, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Then note this is verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Now, you know, should, should we just stop right now and say invitation? You know, come, come to Jesus, right? 
Come, come one, come all. All of those of you who want your sins forgiven. All of those of you who want your relationship with God to be restored. Come and receive Jesus. And as a special bonus offer. This is what we have to offer as a special bonus. Along with receiving eternal life, you're going to get a hefty dose of persecution on your plate. No extra charge. Sounds like it's almost too good to pass up, doesn't it? But listen, there's more. Just like Paul said that the Lord rescued him from his persecutions. And just like the Lord promised Joshua that no one would be able to stand against him. I want you to know that in the midst of your opposition, in the midst of your persecution, God will be with you as well. He will not leave you and He will not forsake you. So yes, we will face opposition. Yes, we will face persecution. It could come any number of ways. Maybe it's maybe our persecution, we're, we're, we're not invited to be a part of this community event. Or maybe you have a neighbor who dislikes your biblical stance on a certain issue and your neighbor makes your life a living you-know-what. Maybe as you face persecution, you are even canceled by those who disagree with you. You might lose all the social capital you ever thought. You might lose your peer group for taking a biblical stand. Maybe the persecution for you will be uh, losing your, your beloved tax write-off uh, you know, with how much you give to the church. You get an IRS. And you think, oh, that will never happen. Um, during our last election cycle, we had a major presidential candidate who said um, that any church that doesn't like begin to toe the line with the current LGBT agenda, that they should lose their tax-exempt status. And so here's what that means for us, okay? That means this church would lose its tax-exempt status. That means no, the amount of money you give here wouldn't count toward your income tax. Now, for some of you, okay, that's not a big deal. For others of you, you might think, oh, wow. It's going to cause me to reconsider some things. Are, are you willing to face that kind of persecution? Does the knowledge that you would face opposition, persecution, does that cause you to live your Christian life differently? Suppose, for example, you're currently reading the Bible with a coworker during your lunch break, but management comes up with a new idea and says, yeah, we, we frown on that idea. We don't, we don't want you doing that. You're gonna, are you going to stop reading the Bible with your coworker over lunch? I remember a number of years ago when I was a school teacher, um, we were told that we weren't even supposed to have, we weren't supposed to have a Bible in our classroom, uh, taught public school. And... Um, And I remember thinking, I'm not taking my Bible off my desk. Now, I'm not going to, I taught math, so I didn't like get up and preach to my students. But I, I said, you know, well, you can fire me if you want, but that's not going to happen. I'm not taking the Bible out. Are you willing to face persecution? Because it's not a matter of if that we're going to have opposition or if we're going to have persecution. We will face that persecution. Just, just as sure as Joshua was going to face it, And God said, I will be with you. And no man will be able to stand against you. We will face it. And so, really, the time to decide how you're going to handle that persecution is before the persecution happens. Okay? To resolve your mind. Say, this is how I'm going to respond if and when that happens. Which takes us to our next point. Point number three. We have been given clear instructions. 
we have been given clear instructions. In light of the certainty that he'll be facing persecution or opposition, God tells Joshua in verses 7 and 8, follow those with me there, verses 7 and 8, he says, Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all that Moses, my servant, commanded you. And do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. God here, He's centering Joshua's focus on the importance of the Word of God. He tells Joshua to be strong and very courageous as he's careful to do everything that the law of Moses commands him to do. The emphasis here, of course, is on the law of Moses. Those, those are the first five books of the Bible. Now, you might read that and think, well, well what, about, what about the rest of the Bible? Well, the rest of the Bible didn't even exist at the time that Joshua was living, okay? And so, as far as Joshua is concerned, that is the Bible. There, there are only the first five books at this time. And so... God is telling Joshua to do everything that God's Word commands. And so for us, that would be Genesis to Revelation. For Joshua, that would be Genesis to Deuteronomy. And he's not supposed to turn from it. He says to the right or to the left. That's not a political statement. It means he's not supposed to, he's not supposed to add to it or take away from it. He's not supposed to interpret the Word of God to his own liking. He's to do what the Word of God commands, period, full stop. And as he does what the Word of God commands, he's told you'll have good success wherever you go. Now, beloved, don't read that and think, oh, good you know, if I do what the Word of God says, this is kind of my magic formula for business success or relationship success or something like that. That's not, what, that's not what he's saying here. This promise isn't a guarantee that if you do what the Bible says, you're going to be on Fortune 500 or something. That's not what he's saying here. Rather, it's a timeless principle that still holds true today that the Bible itself presents to us God's general principles for a well-ordered and God-honoring life. And when you do what the Bible teaches, we generally experience great blessing. And so when God tells Joshua to do what the Word of God says, don't turn from it to the right or left, you'll have good success. He's simply telling Joshua that the Word of God the Word of God will give him directions to live a life that is pleasing to God and a life that's free from many of the problems that we currently face in our world. Beloved, I, you know, I was thinking about that this week. I thought, how many of the problems that we face in this world would just whoosh, go away if we just did what God's Word tells us, tells us to do? Just even, if, even if, just, if Christians, like never mind the rest of the world, if just Christians would do what the Bible tells us to do. How many of our problems would just disappear? But it raises an important question. How is Joshua to do what the Word of God commands if he doesn't know what the Word of God commands? He can't, can he? A number of years ago, one of my first years here, I, I preached a sermon series. Um, it was based on that popular saying called, you know, what, what would Jesus do? Um, but the title of the sermon series was actually, What Did Jesus Do? Because we can't possibly do what Jesus would do unless we know what Jesus did do. Well, in the same way here, 
Joshua can't do what the Word of God commands if he doesn't know what the Word of God is commanding. And so he's told in verse 8 that the book of the law is not to depart from his mouth. He's told to meditate on God's law day and night so that he can be careful to do everything that's written in it. In other words, you have to know what the law commands if you plan on following the law. You know, we may accidentally keep the law if we don't know. I mean, we might stumble on, oh, well, what do you know? I just I kept the law. I didn't, didn't even know I was doing that. But if we want to actually keep it, we need to know it. And that's where the rubber meets the road for us. To this day, beloved, we are still called to keep God's word. I'll refer again to what's over here on the wall in this the Great Commission. It says, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to obey all that Jesus commands us to do. But beloved, that means we need to know what God commands. Because we can't do what God commands unless we know what God commands. And so we need to spend time, regularly spend time in God's Word. And not just in a casual manner. In Joshua 1, we're, we're told... Um, as well as in Psalm 1, for those of you familiar with that psalm, we're told that, the, that a righteous man will meditate on the Word of God day and night. So he's not just going to read the Word, he's going to meditate on it. To ponder, to, to slow down and think about the Word. For some people, sadly, the Sunday morning experience, this, 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 is, this is all the Bible that they're going to get. And maybe for some of you, sadly, this is all the Bible you're going to get until next Sunday. And if that's true for you, then let me just tell you, that's not enough. It's not enough. I was doing some research this past week about how people spend their time. Um, the average person, according to my research, I don't know how they figure all this out, but, but the average person spends two hours a day on social media. And I thought, Lord, help me. Two hours a day on social media and, it, and three hours a day watching television. So, five hours, so for the average person, five hours a day between social media and television. Now, please don't hear me wrong. There's, not, there's nothing inherently wrong, sinful about television or uh, social media but as far as the technology goes. The technologies. Now, there are some sinful things on those technologies, but the technologies themselves aren't inherently sinful. But if a person spends five hours a day being influenced by the culture through social media and through television and spends 45 minutes per week being influenced by the Bible, then we really shouldn't be surprised when the person is, turns out to be more like the world than to God. God has given us a clear instruction manual. We need to spend time in it. And listen, just for the... If you're like, oh, wow, man, I don't spend enough time in it. Don't, don't think that you're going to go from you know, zero minutes a day to this week. I'm, I'm going to set aside four hours a day. You, you are setting yourself up for failure. But why don't you start by reading a paragraph a day or reading a chapter a day. Start with something manageable that you can do as you grow in grace. Biblical illiteracy is a serious, serious problem within the church. And we can do better. Now to our final point. Point number four. We have His presence 
with us. We have his presence with us. Joshua is able to do everything that God commands him to do because God is with him every step of the way. Twice in this passage, once in verse 5, then again in verse 9, God promises, he says, I am with you. In verse 5, God, God tells Joshua, he says, I will be with you just as I was with Moses. Now that is an astounding claim. It's an astounding claim because to this day, to this day, for the faithful Jewish person, there is no human being in history who is greater than Moses. He is the most important person in the Jewish faith. And so imagine God saying, I'm going to be with you just like I was with the most important person who has ever lived in your faith. That's what he's telling Joshua. It's an incredible claim. And then again in verse 9, Joshua is told, says, don't be frightened, don't be dismayed, because the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Beloved, that, that's God standing chest deep in the water, holding out His hands to Joshua and saying, don't be afraid. I'm right here with you. Don't be afraid. I'm not going to let you drown. I'm going to catch you. And we might read that promise to Joshua and think, well, that's you know, good for Joshua. But what about, what about me? The truth of the matter is, God has made that same promise to you as well and to me. One, one more time to point at the wall here at the Great Commission. As we make disciples, Jesus promises us there at the end. He says, I am with you always to the end of the age. He is with us always to the end of the age. And He manifests His presence to us in any number of ways. He might manifest His presence to us with a song that we sing as we gather together. Or He might manifest His presence to you as you're spending that time in His Word, reading His Word. Or maybe His presence is manifest to you as, as you receive an encouraging card or a text message from a brother or sister in Christ. Or maybe even better, as you get a hug when you come in on Sunday morning by somebody saying, I've been praying for you this week. See, God is with us. We can be absolutely certain of that. And however He manifests His presence to us, be grateful that He is doing so. One, one final way that He manifests His presence to us or final final idea, at least there's plenty of ways that He manifests His presence, but one final idea for us this morning is in this little cup. You have them there at your, at your foot. Uh, for those, some of you might be wondering, what, you know, what's all that about? It looks like it's got some juice in it. It looks like it's got a piece of something in it, bread. That's what it is. We're, 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 we're getting ready here in just a moment. We're going to celebrate what different traditions, they call it different things, we call it the Lord's Supper. Um, some traditions, Christian traditions, call it the Eucharist. Um, others call it communion. But what we're doing is we're remembering that God was with us. We're remembering that God is with us. That God sent His Son, Jesus, 
to die on the cross. That His body, which is what the bread represents, His body was given for us. And His blood, which is what the grape juice represents, His blood was shed for us. And so as we take from the Lord's Supper, we're celebrating something. We're celebrating God's presence with us. Now, if if you're a Christian today, even if you're not a member of this church, if you're a Christian and you're faithfully following the Lord, I pray that you're a member somewhere. If you're not a member somewhere, then you're not faithfully following the Lord. Okay? But you're faithfully following the Lord. We would invite you to to be a part of this supper with us. If you're not a Christian today, um, it's best that you don't take. And there's, no, there's nothing special in here. You're, you're not going to take this and say, well, now I'm safe because I've taken this. That, that's not what this represents. What we're doing as Christians is we're celebrating what Jesus has done for us, what He's accomplished for us on the cross. And if you're not a Christian, we pray that you may be someday. We pray that you will be soon. We pray even, even today that the Lord would save you. But you don't have anything to celebrate in the supper until you're a Christian. Because the this, this supper is a, it's a reminder of what Jesus has done for us. And so everybody grab, grab your uh, communion cup. Uh, those of you who uh, want to participate in with me. And, um, and we're going to take the bread first. So pull the wafer or the seal back to remove the wafer. And on the night before he was crucified, as Jesus was celebrating the Passover meal, which then became known to us as the Last Supper or the Lord's Supper, he took the bread and he broke it and he gave thanks. He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Lord Jesus, thank you. for loving us enough to leave the glory of heaven. To humble yourself enough to become a man, a human being. We, we might not think that that takes a great deal of humility, but you were, you were God. And you became a human being. Thank you for loving us. Taking on a body that you might suffer shame on our behalf. We love you. Thank you for taking time to listen to this sermon audio from Potomac Heights Baptist Church. Please feel free to make copies of this audio to give to others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission from Potomac Heights Baptist Church.